Holy Spirit, we pray that you would feed us this morning through your word. We come hungry. And there's nowhere else for us to turn in creation. For only you, God, have the words of eternal life. And so we pray that you would strengthen us, Spirit, by your word. Lord Jesus, we want to see you lifted up this morning. Father, we want to praise you for the work that you've done to reconcile us to yourself, to swallow up death forever so that we might live with you. And we pray that you would instruct us this morning through your word. You might change us this morning by your word and that you might cause us to rejoice in our resurrection and the future redemption of our bodies. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 1797, British and Dutch ships fought in the Battle of Campertown as part of the French Revolution. I want you to picture old wooden ships like this one. This is a painting from the Battle of Campertown. The British were led by Admiral Duncan, who led the fleet from his flagship, the Venerable. Now, the Dutch overwhelmed the British at the beginning of the battle, and the main mast of the Venerable was hit, and the ship lost its ability to maneuver the seas. Now, somehow, in the battle, the ship's colors, its flag, was lowered. Now, to lower or to strike the flag of a ship, particularly the Admiral's flagship, would have caused distress throughout the British fleet and may have caused other British ships to surrender, thinking that the admiral had given up the fight. Jack Crawford stepped forward. He grabbed the ship's colors and he climbed the injured mast and he nailed the ship's colors to the mast. And when he did, he indicated to the rest of the British fleet that they needed to keep fighting, which they did sadly defeating my own Dutch ancestors. <laughs> now, Jack Crawford's actions gave, gave birth to the phrase, nail your colors to the mast. It became a picture for steadfastness of stubborn resolve in the face of a great enemy. Instead of striking or lowering a flag or your colors in surrender or defeat, you nailed it to the mast of the ship. Far from surrender, you revealed your intentions to go down with the ship, to hold your ground rather than surrender. It's become an idiom for steadfastness, for holding on to one's beliefs firm until the end, no matter the cost. Nail your colors to the mast. Now, the constant struggle in the Christian life is to be awakened and gripped by eternity more than this present world. As God's people, we are ransomed by an eternal king who's promised to take us home to his eternal kingdom. This present world, therefore, is no longer our home. God has made us strangers and aliens and sojourners here. We're not home, we're headed home. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God's prepared for those who love him. God is preparing for his people an eternal weight of glory that will far exceed anything this world has to offer. A land where righteousness dwells. 
a land where death will be no more. But this world is so visible and tangible. It calls out for our attention. It's so present and compelling. It's so threatening and swaggering. This world's wealth and comforts and accolades distract us from the eternal riches God is preparing for us. The rewards of this life tempt us to grab all we can now and they can evaporate our longings for heaven. Or instead of the world's wealth, we can think about the world's pain and suffering, the world's opposition. All these things taunt us. They whisper that God has forgotten us or that God doesn't love us. The hardships of this world can obscure the greatness and the goodness of God. We can become bitter and hopeless. Well, church family, we need to nail our colors to the mast. Whether this world offers us treasure or hardship, whether the world threatens us or makes empty promises to us, we need to stubbornly live for eternity, not this world. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls the church in Corinth to live in light of the resurrection. Christ is risen. Christ has returned to the Father. Christ is preparing, even now, a place for us at the Father's home. And he will return for us. And when he does, we will be with him forever. The main idea in these final verses in 1 Corinthians 15 is that we that Jesus leads us in victory over sin and death. Therefore, Paul says in verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the Lord's work. We'll follow four movements in these verses. In verse 50, Paul begins with a fundamental problem. This is not an incidental problem. It's not a minor problem. It is foundational. Look at verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This is the foundational problem. God has created an eternal kingdom that's everlasting and enduring. It will continue in perpetuity. But we're living in bodies that are quite the opposite, bodies that are frail and decaying and aging and dying. And Paul points out a problem. These mortal bodies cannot indwell, cannot dwell in an immortal kingdom. This perishable body cannot dwell in an imperishable kingdom. Now we'll see in a moment how sin, our sin, has brought this about. But for now, Paul holds up this problem for the Corinthians and for us. Dear Corinthians, there will be a resurrection, but these bodies that we're walking around in will not do. They're ill-fitted for eternity. They're ill-suited for the eternal kingdom that we will soon inherit. Now in Romans 8, which Paul probably writes from Corinth, he mentions this in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of of childbirth. Paul acknowledges that creation itself groans as if in childbirth, but not from the discomfort of a child being born, but because of the sin, our sin, that has affected creation to the core. It's infected creation with confusion and disruption 
and creation longs for the pain of sin to be removed from its shoulders. It's longing for the redemption of itself. And Paul says in chapter 8, verse 23, that it's not only the creation that groans. We also groan. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now Paul is saying, those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who are experiencing the blessings of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, the Holy Spirit who takes the truths of the gospel and personalizes them for us so that we feel them as our own and treasure them, the Holy Spirit who brings us the word, who empowers us for life and for righteousness and for all things, the Holy Spirit who commits to see that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth through the proclamation of the church. We have the first fruits of the Spirit and still we groan. Why? Because we're waiting for the full experience of our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our physical bodies. You see, these mortal bodies are not fit for heaven and that's our fundamental problem. And so if you're groaning this morning over the brokenness of your body, it's okay. It's okay for you to acknowledge your fear and anxiety about how you'll age and how your body will succumb to death. It's okay to honestly amend the effects of sin on creation and on humanity. We groan as we experience the aches and pains of our joints and arthritis and fear of dementia in our minds. It's okay for us to grieve over the broken bodies of people we love. It's okay because that acknowledgement leads us to long for resurrection hope. The hope that Christ has purchased for us in his own resurrection. Now, Paul doesn't stop with the fundamental problem. In verses 51 to 53, Paul confronts the problem by unfurling or unwrapping for us a glorious mystery. Look at verses 51 to 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Paul is Committing, he's telling us that our bodies will change. They will be transformed, altered, and exchanged. That's how God will deal with the fundamental problem. He will change these bodies so that they are fit for his eternal kingdom. Now, when will this happen? Paul says it will happen in a moment, in a flash, in the time it takes for an eye to twinkle. And it will be an instantaneous change and transformation, and it will happen when the last trumpet blasts. And when that heavenly trumpet sounds, the bodies of those who are already dead will be raised, changed. And those of us who may still be alive at that time when the trumpet blasts and Christ returns will be changed as well. Now, through the, the Old Testament, these trumpet blasts, these heavenly trumpet blasts accompanied God's presence in creation among his people. We see that over and over again. It signals God's presence among his people in creation. And we just preached through Exodus. And in Exodus 19, God is preparing to deliver the law 
And we read this, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now, what does Paul say about this particular trumpet blast in 1 Corinthians 15? He says it will be the last trumpet blast. God in the Lord Jesus will descend into creation again and he will be present with his people. And this will be the last trumpet blast for Jesus will establish his eternal kingdom. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes this, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Amen. Johnny Erickson Tata's joy constantly instructs me. If you don't know Johnny Erickson Tata, she was paralyzed when she was 17 in a diving accident in the Chesapeake Bay. And here's one of the many things she's written. God blew out the lamps in my life, which lit up the here and now and made the here and now so exciting. And she's talking about her paralysis. The dark despair which followed wasn't fun, but it sure did make what the Bible says about heaven come alive. One day when Jesus comes back, God's going to throw opens, open heaven's shutters. There's not a doubt in my mind that I'll be fantastically more excited and ready for heaven than if I were on my feet at that moment. Don't let your hardships drive you away from looking toward heaven. Let them, your hardships, lift your sights and move your focus onto that celestial landscape. Brothers and sisters, we can release our grip on our bodies. I don't mean to say there that our bodies don't mean anything. Wandavi did a great job last week of showing us why these bodies matter and why glorifying God in our bodies matter. But Parkinson's disease has no eternal hold on you. Alzheimer's that's threatening your mind has no firm hold on you. Neither does a heart attack or blindness or a stroke. They're all temporary. You will outlive every enemy of your body that you encounter in this life. Wait, church, for the redemption of our physical bodies. We will trade in these tents for eternal dwellings that will last forever. Jesus will transform the mortal, perishable flesh into eternal, imperishable bodies. It's coming. And Paul says, fix your eyes on it. Nail your colors to the mast. When that trumpet sounds, your eyes will no longer fill with tears of sadness. Your back will no longer wince with pain. Your lungs will no longer struggle with asthma. Why? For the former things have passed away. And all that's broken will be set straight. And death will be no more. Now, by what authority does Paul 
make these claims? By what power can these things be true? In verses 54 to 57, Paul holds out before us a decisive victory. Look at verse 54 and verse 55. How is it that this glorious mystery can come to pass? When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul is taunting death. And death gives no reply. Paul explains how the victory has occurred in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now hang with me for about two paragraphs on this verse. What is sin's power? What gives sin, what gives death Power. What gives death a sting? It's sin. Without sin, death has no sting. It's why Paul would write in 1 Philippians that it is better for him that he goes to be with the Lord. Death has lost its sting for Paul because the sting of death is sin. In Romans 6.23, the reason for this is because the wages of sin is death. And in Hebrews 9.27, we read that just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So the power or the sting of death is sin. But why does sin have power to inflict such harm? Paul says in verse 56 that the power of sin is the law. It's a really interesting statement. Why would he say that it's the law that gives sin power. Didn't King David say that the law is perfect, that the law brings rejoicing, that the law is pure and clean and righteous? So why does the law give sin power? It forces us to slow down and to understand Paul's relation, what Paul sees as the relationship between sin and the law. Romans 7 is a good place to go. Romans 7, 7, Paul says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. This is admittedly dense. But what Paul is trying to communicate in the Spirit's power is that awareness of God's law brings awareness of sin. Without light, you don't know you're living in darkness. But the light of God's law has come, and we know for sure that we are sinners without excuse. And in fact, Paul says, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment of do not covet actually produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Nicole's parents loved to tell the story of when she was one or two and they told her, don't touch the bookshelf. And so she would walk up to the bookshelf and she would put her finger right here, right? Just a few inches away from the bookshelf. Why did she do that? 
because her parents told her, don't touch the bookshelf, and that produced in her a desire to touch the bookshelf. I think this is what Paul is saying here. And it's not good news, ultimately. In verse 9, he says, I was once alive, in a sense, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. This awareness of sin came alive, and suddenly it was thriving in my life and in my heart. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Why does death come through the law? Because sin sprang to, into life when he heard the law. When Paul's sinful heart saw the commandment, he rebelled against it, and that rebellion killed Paul. How? Because he sought to find life outside of God. Same as Adam and Eve in the garden. They sought to find life outside of God. And that ushered in sin's death penalty. Now in verse 57, Paul writes, But, so the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God he sent Christ. Christ who was condemned in the flesh, that is, as a human being, for our sin. Christ who fulfilled the law perfectly. Christ who assumed our death penalty for our sin. So that Paul could write to the Galatians that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Do you see the underlying point that Jesus empties sin of its power by fulfilling the law, by assuming our sin on himself, by perfectly obeying God, by being righteous in our place. He's fulfilled the law. He's emptied sin of its power, and therefore he's evaporated the sting from death. And in his resurrection, he gives public proof that his work was effective. And that all who join him by faith and who are united with him by faith will likewise experience the same life. Leon Morris wrote that where sin is pardoned, death has no sting. So Christian, there is no sting left in death for you. Death has no fight left for you. And friend, if you have not yet come to faith in Christ, what a better moment than this to come with simple, childlike, earnest faith and to look to Christ instead of yourself. To look to Christ to take the sting out of death. In Hebrews 2, we read that the children share in flesh and blood. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same thing, that is, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil. Sting death has lost its very sting. Now, what do we do as a result? We stand here with this truth, 
We stand here knowing that our resurrection is secure, that our bodies will be redeemed, that we will be with him forever. Therefore, what? Has this life lost its purpose? Should we just be focused on the next, just biding our time and waiting for death to come or Christ to return? No, Paul says in the final verse of this glorious chapter, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, as a result of everything I've said in 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, nail your colors to the mast. Literally sit down in this truth. Be immovable so that you might find your hope in this. And everything you do for the sake of the Lord will not be in vain. It will not be empty. It will not be purposeless. Paul writes tenderly to them, my beloved brothers and sisters. He knows what he's asking of the church in Corinth. Corinth is a Roman colony teeming with culture and philosophical pride and great wealth. And to the Corinthians, the gospel that the Corinthian church proclaims and lives by is utter foolishness. And the Corinthian church for themselves, they're distracted and stubborn divisions and false teaching have infiltrated their ranks. But though it's hard, Paul calls the church to a consequential task. It will not be in vain. It will have a consequence. Stake everything on this gospel. And all your labor will not be in vain. First, he says, be steadfast. Literally, it's sit down and be immovable in this truth. Don't shrink back from it. The eternal, imperishable reality may be shielded from your view, but hold the line. Hold the line. Throw your anchor into your invisible future and let it rest there. And let it bring purpose and deliver hope and meaning in your life now. Trust Christ that this world is not the end of the road, but that we're living for a world that we cannot see. What does Noah spend his life doing? Building an ark based on the promise of God that a flood would come. And he was ridiculed for it. This is a call by Paul for the Corinthians to prepare the ark in the midst of a city that has rejected them. Live for the city you cannot see that will last longer, everlastingly longer than this world. And Paul says, abound, abound in the work of the Lord. Our job is consequential and meaningful and vital. Abound in it. Don't dabble about distractedly. Get to work. Throw yourself into it. You may only have maybe 60 or 80 years for this work. Overflow with energetic efforts. Take risks. Live on less. Invest your time. Sprint toward your neighbors. Abound. And you're abounding in the Lord's work. Make disciples. Proclaim the gospel. Serve your neighbors. Pursue righteousness. Fight sin. Worship God. Treasure Christ. Rely on the Spirit. Pray without ceasing. Teach children the gospel. 
Love your work and do it with all your heart. Bring order to creation. Announce forgiveness of sins in Christ. Abound in the work of the Lord. Bring him glory and honor in creation. For as long as he gives you breath, knowing that your labor is not in vain. It's not empty. It is not meaningless. It is not useless or baseless or purposeless. It will last. Your labor is a consequential labor. There is a reward reserved for you in heaven. Henceforth, there is laid up for me, Paul says, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing, who have loved the idea that Christ will return for us. Or Hebrews 10, 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, when you have abounded in the work of the Lord, you may receive what was promised. Here's a final question. How do we do this? How do we pursue endurance in the resurrection hope of the gospel? How do we remain steadfast and immovable? How do we sit down in this truth? How do we throw our anchor into the world we cannot see so that it infuses this world we can see with purpose and joy? I submit to you, it's ordinary faithfulness. Ordinary faithfulness. Simple obedience. Here are five things. If we sat here for an hour, we could probably think of more. Join a healthy local church family who trusts the Spirit to work through the body, through the Bible. Commit to a local church. Join a family. Take those one another commands that are in Scripture and apply them to a specific local church family. And trust that the Spirit will work through the Bible to do the work that Jesus has for us as his people. We gather around that ordinary truth. Second, treasure Christ, worshiping him daily in your home and weekly together in this place. Treasure him. Trust the drip, drip, drip of worship in our lives. That as we worship him together, as we lift up our hearts and voices alone in our homes and together when we gather, that Jesus is causing us to look away from this world in all the right ways and to hold on to him. And we do this together. Third, engage in genuine friendships with other Christians marked by truth and love. Resist skating along the surface of one another's lives. Dive deep into one another's hearts and know one another so that you can deliver truth and comfort and correction when it might be needed. Fourth, pursue righteousness in the power of the Spirit. Not righteousness in your own strength, not righteousness for your own glory, but righteousness that comes as the Spirit brings life. Look and stare at the gospel. Sing the gospel. Pray until your affections are stirred for the gospel and then pursue righteousness. And finally, proclaim Christ as he gives you opportunity. This is the hope 
that our neighbors and friends and colleagues would desperately need. Every day they live on this earth, it becomes less and less certain. Their bodies become that much more broken. And we have the story that there is a God who has promised us the redemption of our bodies, who's promised us an eternal kingdom where righteousness dwells and death will be no more. Proclaim Christ as he gives you opportunity. Now, ordinary faithfulness only works because we worship an extraordinary God. We worship an extraordinary God who is calling the dead to life through the work of the church. As the church proclaims the word by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit brings life and then conforms us into the image of Christ. Now, I want us to close this morning by nailing our colors to the mast in song. Reminding one another in song of what is true. So the band is going to come back to the platform now while I read a passage from Isaiah 25 where Isaiah looks to this future day of the Lord where the Lord will usher in this kingdom. This is Isaiah 25 starting in verse 6. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. God will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Would you stand and let's nail our colors to the mast.